Hello, I'm Rob Congdon, Director of CMI-TV. Please join us now as we begin a new video series on how to understand the scriptures. What we're going to study in this classes for Bereans who seek to understand a greater understanding of God's plan and purpose of history, we're going to see how our part is in that history. And in this series, we're specifically going to teach the skills, the techniques, if you will, on how to take a passage of Scripture, how to understand exactly what God wrote, how to get its full meaning out for ourselves, so that we could teach others and instruct others in addition to our own spiritual growth. So please join us now. This series was originally taught in Edinburgh, Scotland, at Corrubbers Christian Institute. There we had university-age students coming to our classes to study specifically how they could apply and use the scriptures in their lives, in their church's lives. And in some cases, the students went on to be pastors and to serve the Lord by teaching the Word. So this class is to really give you those skills. Our first session is going to be in how to understand the significance of our Bible that's our source material as we study it. So please join me now as we get a greater understanding of the scriptures and develop the skills to draw out the passage in the full meaning that God intended for us. Lord bless you. Have you ever asked, how can I study my Bible in such a way that I can understand what God is saying, apply it to my life, and be sure I'm not in error? I have asked this question many times and still occasionally ask it. In our world, it's extremely important to properly live as God has instructed us through his word, the Bible. We must never detract from God's glory by improperly using the scriptures. We live in an age unparalleled in terms of study helps and aids available on the internet. Many are free and are among the classic tools used for Bible study. Prior to the Reformation, only a very few could read and study the scriptures. The clergy of that day were responsible to teach the people. Today, we can study and learn far more about our Lord than at any other time in history. No longer do we have to rely solely upon the schooled church leaders. A pastor has a unique opportunity of attending Bible school and intensively studying the Bible. Now, for the first time in history, much of that material studied is available to the average Christian if one will discipline themselves to study the scriptures on their own. Unfortunately for many, the problem is not with desire as much as with the need to know how to study and what study helps and tools to use. It is the prime goal of this series to open up the world of Bible study to the average church attendee. I believe that with an understanding of the tools and their use, there remains no limit to the heart knowledge available to the student willing to prayerfully study and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Additionally, with diligent study, the student will know that what he is concluding from his study is truly God's teaching. Now this series should answer many of the whys of the Bible. 
necessary Bible study skills will be developed through these videos. This material will stress the practical application of Scripture, as well as provide each student with a better knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With this knowledge, we pray each of us will come to have a closer walk with Him. In summary then, the goal of this video series is to develop better skills as a student of the Bible and thereby to know the author of the Bible more fully. As with any course of study, we need to observe what are our objectives. So I'd like to just briefly cover them now. First of all, we want to learn how to properly and without error interpret passages of the Bible. Secondly, we want to learn how to use Bible study tools that are available to us today. Thirdly, to learn how to instruct others from the Bible with confidence that we are truly teaching the Word of God. And finally, to learn to give Christian answers based solely upon the authority of the Bible and not personal opinions or world philosophy. It's my prayer that these goals will be accomplished in your and my spiritual life through this course. The prime purpose of this series is to teach you how to study your Bible in the most effective and accurate way. We can only do this as we understand that the Bible is the prime source of the revelation of God. This lesson gives you the historical background and general information about the textbook for this course which is the Bible. In addition, we'll learn the biblical basis for believing that the translations, which you hold in your hand and my hand, represent truly the Word of God as he penned it. This study will first look at the world of literature and where the Bible fits in. You see, the Bible is unique for many reasons. There is actually more evidence that the modern Bible represents a near-perfect copy of the author's original writings than any other piece of literature in the world. What we often don't realize is that there are no original manuscripts of Plato, Tacitus, Herodotus, or Aristotle. Yet scholars around the world read copies today and never once question the words or ideas contained in these copies by these writers of the past. The Bible, however, is placed under the scrutiny of a microscope. Men argue that we do not have an accurate record of the original writings. They say that what is written bears no resemblance to the original. And in fact, in today's world, this is becoming a renewed attack against the Bible itself and attacking those who hold to the Bible as representing God's word to us. Now, is there attack? Is it reasonable to say you can't trust the Bible because we don't have the original manuscripts? Well, I'd like to look at this from a comparative viewpoint. Let's look at ancient world authors that we well know the name we can look at when they wrote. What is the oldest copy we have still in possession, still in existence, of what they wrote? 
copy I said, not original, because keep in mind, there are no originals of the ones we're going to be talking about. They're gone. They're, we only have copies today. Then we want to look at how many years there were between that original writing and the first copy that we now have today that shows us what they supposedly wrote. And how many manuscripts do we have of these very earliest copies of the original writing? So let's start. We'll take Plato. Plato wrote in 400 BC, but there are no copies of Plato from 400 BC to 900 AD. So the oldest copy of any writing of Plato that we have is in 900 AD. That means 1,300 years elapsed from the time Plato wrote till a copy we now have in our hands that we can read of what he said. And of those early copies, we only have seven of them. Tacitus, he wrote in 100 AD. So we're moving a little closer in time here. First copy we have of his writing is in 1000 AD. In other words, 900 years between his writing it to the oldest copy we have that even bears a resemblance to what he wrote. And we only have one copy of those. Herodotus, he wrote in 450 BC. The only copy, the oldest copy we have today goes back to 900 AD. So again, 1,350 years between the actual original writing and the oldest copy we have. And we have eight of those manuscripts of that era. Aristotle. We've all heard of Aristotle. He wrote in 350 BC. But again, the oldest copy we have of Aristotle's writing goes back only to 1100 AD. That means 1,450 years between the original and the oldest copy that we have. And there's only five copies of that. Now, keeping that in mind, the New Testament that we hold in our hands it was written between about 30 to 90 A.D. The oldest copies we have are from 160 to 300 A.D. That means there's only 110 years between the original writing and the oldest copy we have. And how many do we have that are in that age of oldest copies? We have 5,300 copies compare that to the most we had of Plato was seven. Yet we don't question what Plato wrote, do we? We read those copies that are 1,300 years between the original and the copy and seven manuscripts that testify that and we, we don't question Plato. But the Bible is always questioned. Even though there are 5,300 manuscripts that are within about 100 years of the writing of the New Testament. And if you add early translations and quotes of the early church fathers, that's from about 150 to 400 A.D., the total reaches over 100,000 manuscripts. And keep in mind that the church fathers, some of them wrote in A.D. 150. That brings them within 60 years of some of the original writings of the New Testament. Still within the lifetime of some people who saw the original manuscripts, and could compare to what the translations and copies were producing. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the accuracy of the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament was written between the years of 1500 B.C. and 400 B.C. by kings, prophets, and leaders of Israel. Despite many authors in the span of 1100 years, the unity of the Old Testament is unparalleled by any other writing or literature. The Dead Sea Scrolls reveal that while we, there may exist some variations, the majority are really spelling variations, in the many manuscripts, no single variation affects or alters a single basic Bible doctrine. Now, the New Testament was written probably between 30 A.D. and 100 A.D. By A.D. 200, it had been translated already into seven languages. By A.D. 500, 13 languages. By A.D. 900, 17 languages. And by 1400, 28 languages. And it continues. By 1800, 57 languages translated it. By 1900, 537 languages were now of the New Testament. And by 1980, the last numbers I could find, 1100 languages are translating the Bible. Just remember also, the Bible was the first book ever printed using movable type by the Gutenberg Press in 1455. So, while we have no original autographa, and that's what we call those original manuscripts like Paul's writings or John's or Mark's, while we have no originals of either the Old Testament or the New Testament scriptures today, yet the confidence placed in our copies is well-founded and far stronger than any confidence in what Plato or Aristotle wrote. With so many copies to compare also, our translations of the Bible clearly reflect the inspired Word of God through his writers. The modern reader of the Bible has only to choose what is the best or proper translation available in his or her own language. In order to have such confidence, we must understand how we got our modern Bible. The earliest copies of the New Testament were written on papyri, a type of paper made from the pith of a papyrus plant. The pages were made into rolls called scrolls that reached sometimes from 100 to 200 feet in length. Lettering used only capital letters. The early church used this form of paper until A.D. 400. As of 1977, we had 82 of these very early copies of the New Testament, all dated between 100 A.D. and 400 A.D. From A.D. 400 to A.D. 900, the copies are made on vellum and are called codices. A codex is similar in construction to the books we now use. The church in Egypt pioneered in the use of this form of written material capital or block letters continued in use and sentences were written without punctuation in these copies of the New Testament. We currently have 2,795 copies of these biblical manuscripts. Now, around AD 900, another change was made and continued until the advent of movable type printing press in 1455. This change was to minuscule. 
Now, minuscule writing uses both capitals and lowercase letters and can include cursive or script writing as well. These were hand copied upon vellum. Clearly, this period of time is closer to modern times, and thus we would expect and do find a greater number of extinct copies of these on the vellum, approximately 2,795 such copies. With AD 1455, the world changed. The invention of movable type marked a major turning point in the disseminating of knowledge. Johann Gutenberg's first book was a Latin Bible. Prior to this, all books were hand copied. Wycliffe Bibles were inscribed by hand on vellum between the 1300s and 1400s. Some copies took 10 months to two years to produce and cost a person a year's wages to own one. Through the innovation of printing, paper and book forms became common and were very similar to what we now know of books today. Lettering included all types of styles or fonts of letters and reproducible artwork became prevalent. The need for more copies of the Bible was the chief motivating force behind many of the improvements in the printing world. The world owes much to Christianity in this field. It's good to reflect on the importance of various manuscripts now available from the AD 100s up to the 1500s. There are three significant reasons for giving such importance to these early papyrus copies. Number one, they are the earliest extant witnesses to the autographa, in other words, to the originals. They're closest to those original writings. They give an immediate witness to the rapid spread of the Bible to the world and to Egypt, where the library started keeping them. And significant witness to text types, that is, families of manuscripts. As scholars have studied the many manuscripts, they sought common characteristics in them. They have compared many manuscripts and have now categorized these common characteristics and determined what we call manuscript families that are based on those characteristics. Surprisingly, the number of families is very small. Like a family tree, these manuscripts reveal their history based on their family ties and in particular the locations where they were found. The families may be broken down into two other categories besides these common characteristics. These new categories are called primary and secondary translations. A primary translation is one that is translated directly from the Greek language into another language. And we're speaking here of the New Testament. A secondary translation is one that is translated from one non-Greek language into a different non-Greek language. Or put another way, a secondary translation is a translation made from another translation or a primary translation. Recall now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a few passages and chapters in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in the common language of the day, Koine Greek. This Greek was used in the commerce transactions of the world of that time. 
Having looked at these technical issues, let us look at the family of tree of our English Bible. From AD 200 to 300 saw the production of the first New Testament translations, the Coptic or Egyptian translation and the Syriac or Syria translation. By the 4th century, a primary translation called the Old Latin Version was produced. Today, no single copy exists, with only 30 fragmentary sections available of this Bible. By the 4th century, the churches in the East and West had accepted the 27 books of our New Testament, and they were formally confirmed as canonical in AD 397 at the Synod of Carthage. Now, canon, that's a Greek word meaning rule or standard of faith and truth. By the 4th century, few people still spoke Greek. Latin had become the common language of the Western world, while Greek remained a scholar's language. In AD 410, Jerome began a Latin translation of the scriptures. His translation, the Latin Vulgate it is called, was completed after 25 years of work. It continued to be the basic Bible, or if you will, the authorized version of the Roman world for many centuries. It was not until the 8th century that a great British scholar named Venerable Bede made an English secondary translation from the Latin Vulgate. Now, Bede was a monk and a scholar writing in Old English, that's Anglo-Saxon. It was on his deathbed that he completed the book of John in A.D. 735, and that completed his translation of the Bible. In the 10th century, Alfred the Great, King of Wessex, translated portions of Exodus, Psalms, and Acts. Alfred, a different person than Alfred, in 955 to 1020, also translated some portions of the Old Testament into English. With the Norman conquest, French became the official language of Britain, and no further English translations were produced until the 14th century and the emergence of Middle English English. There remain only references to these Bibles today, with no fragments remaining. The world would wait until the 14th century to see John Wycliffe finish the first complete translation in the common language of the people of the English tongue. In 1456, the first book, the Bible, was printed with movable type using the Gutenberg Press. In 1516, the first printed Greek New Testament became available as a result of the work of Erasmus. In 1525, Tyndale translated the Bible into English. It was a true primary translation. In other words, it came from the Greek copies. Two copies remain to this day. Miles Coverdale printed an English translation based on the Latin Vulgate, thus it's a secondary translation, in the first half of the 16th century. It was Coverdale who added chapter summations and placed the Apocrypha in the back as an appendix to the Bible. Following this, the Cramner Bible, which consisted of two-thirds of Tyndale's translation and one-third of Coverdale's translation, was published. 
1538, a copy of the Great Bible, it's called the Great Bible because it was 9 inches by 15 inches in size, it was sent to every church in the English realm. In 1546, King James VIII forbade the use of the Tyndale and Culverdale Bibles totally. Ironically, the Great Bible was approved by him even though it was heavily based upon the forbidden translations. In 1555, John Rogers, who had risked his life translating the Cramner Bible, was martyred for his work. It was truly a serious business to be in the Bible translation field in those days in England. In 1560, marginal notes were added along with numbered verses. The translation which included these changes was called the Geneva Bible. It was also called the People's Bible. It was this Bible that was used by Shakespeare, Bunyan, and the Puritans of the Mayflower. When Queen Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558, the authorized Bible of the Church of England was called the Bishop's Bible. Its foundation was the Great Bible, but was checked against all available Hebrew and Greek manuscripts of the time. During this time, the Roman Catholic Church published a translation in 1609. It was a translation of that early Latin Vulgate and was named the Douay Translation for the town in which the work was carried out. All Roman Catholics used this translation until relatively recent times. In 1604, due to Puritan reform pressures, 54 scholars of Britain were named by the king to bring forth a new English Bible translation. It was named for the king, King James, though never approved by the Parliament. The work was published in 1611. Today it is called the Authorized Version in the United Kingdom. This is the preferred name there, for King James was not a man of holy or noble character, and they don't want to reflect his character by putting that name on their Bible. While it is hard to say precisely what parts of the translation came from the previous translations, it is widely accepted that the authorized version is the product of many spiritually strong men throughout church history. That first edition of the King James Version was printed in 1611 by Robert Barker in London. It appears that two issues were published that year, the printing being done possibly in two different shops to meet the expected large demand. The first two printings were large folio Bibles for use in churches, but smaller editions were soon produced for personal use beginning in 1612. With the proliferation of printings, early printer errors crept into the editions. For instance, the word not was left out of the seventh commandment in what eventually came to be called for those printed copies, the Wicked Bible, which said, Thou shalt commit adultery. As well, if some printed sheets were left over from one printing, they were often incorporated into the next. Almost no two existing original 1611 King James Bibles are exactly the same. 
Eventually, there were calls for the need to correct and revise the King James Version because of the printer errors over the years and the changes in spelling and word usage. Corrected editions were published by the Cambridge University Press, the first being in 1629, followed by a second revision in 1638. Several of the revisers were part of the original group of the translators of the authorized version. Carelessly printed copies continued to appear, some even printed on the European continent in Holland. Thus, in 1762, the most significant corrections were completed in addition overseen by Dr. Thomas Paris of Trinity College in Cambridge. The work of Dr. Paris was refined by Benjamin Blaney in 1769. This edition is in reality has become the standard King James Bible in use today. A close scrutiny of that Bible has revealed the following observations. Its vocabulary. 4% of the vocabulary of the King James Bible came from the Wycliffe Bible. 18% of the vocabulary came from the Tyndale Bible, 13% from the Coverdale Bible, 19% from the Geneva Bible, and 4% from the Bishop's Bible. Phrases, sentences taken word for word, about 90% came from the Tyndale Bible. With the 1613 edition, over 300 changes had been made from the original 1611 copy. Unfortunately, it was not until 1628 that any of the truly old Greek manuscripts arrived in England. Thus, they were not directly used in the new translation. The manuscripts studied by these 54 scholars were those most plentiful and of certain families of manuscripts. The group or family of manuscripts gathered for studying the King James, or creating the King James is called the majority text because they were the majority of copies that were out there. It is because the King James represents only the majority text rather than all available manuscripts, particularly some of the very earliest manuscripts, that there is such a strong debate over modern translations in our day. Often both sides misunderstand this debate today. Fine, godly men stand on both sides of this family of manuscripts debate. Note, the debate is not over the accuracy of the King James or over the spiritual state of the translators, but over the family of manuscripts used. Thus, the prime issue is over which family of New Testament Greek manuscripts should be used or given greater weight when deciding upon the best translation or when creating a new primary translation. Today, there are two major families of manuscripts. The first already mentioned is the majority texts, or called the Byzantine manuscripts. Named because the total number of the copies of these manuscripts is far greater than any other manuscript family. A slight variant of this majority text family is the Textus Receptus, meaning received by all. The second group 
of family manuscripts called the Alexandrian manuscript family is formed from the earliest manuscripts. Occasionally it's called the Westcott Hort group. There's a third that has grown in recent times of it's really a hybrid family and it is a mixture of both the Byzantine and the Alexandrian families. Translations using this hybrid family consider the majority text and the earliest manuscript families together, thus creating a combination text of both majority and early texts. Basically, those holding to the majority texts or Texas Receptus believe God providentially preserved the best copies, and because they are the most accurate, they are the majority. Opponents say they are the majority simply because they're relatively recent and not enough time went by to reduce their number, as happened to those very early, early manuscripts. The argument continues to say the oldest, being closest in time to the original, contains fewer errors from the original manuscripts. It is argued against the early text because they are primarily from one area of the world, primarily Alexandria, and the majority texts come from many locations indicating the spread of the scriptures. We must each recognize that man will never settle this debate, and we must remember that those debating the issue are often among the most conservative, Bible-believing Christians on both sides of the manuscript choices. If you are ever involved in this debate, please behave as God-honoring individuals who, above all, believe God has given us his word via the Bible. Here are some guidelines that may be appropriate in this situation. Number one, if you earnestly and prayerfully seek the truth, God will speak through any of the quality, and I stress that, quality primary translations. Avoid paraphrase translations in your studies. Those represent often the thinking of one man and his guess or just judgment as to what word to use. Secondly, differences between the King James Version of the Bible and some of the Alexandrian translations or Bibles, for instance, the New American Standard, reflect less than one-tenth of a percent of the total New Testament. That is, one word difference between these two manuscript families out of every thousand words. That's very minor. Thirdly, the differences encountered when they are never create a difference in the doctrinal teaching of a verse. Note that. They never change the teaching of the scriptures. You see, God's word has come to us in all points exact to the original manuscripts that Paul wrote and John wrote and the others wrote. Therefore, we can trust our English translations if they are primary translations and if you understand how they were put together. I would just add at this point, never accept a translation that one man did because that's limited to his thinking and his preferences and in many cases, his doctrinal preferences. Fourthly, let scholars fight this debate. 
Don't make it a measure of one's spirituality or maturity. Don't say, well, if you like that translation, then you must be far inferior. You're a child in the scriptures. I'm the mature one. Avoid that type of thinking. Avoid also this thinking that you have the only truth there is. Today, in our hands, we hold an English translation of the scriptures that is a exactness to that original copy is totally trustworthy. God has seen to it that we who speak English can still read it in our own language. We can understand it in our own language. We can study it in our own language and we can understand what God has said. Now until our next video, we'll show you the tools that are available. Most of them are free on the internet. And we'll actually give you an example of studying a passage, how I would do it, and how you can learn to use those tools for yourself so you can accurately study the Lord's Word and understand it in greater depth and apply it in your life. Now until that video, may the Lord bless you mightily. We'll either see you here or in the air.